I started AMPT without anybody funding me. And people were asking me who's funding this. I don't need somebody to fund me to do what I think is the right thing to do. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world with your hosts, David Ye and Puniku Pavia. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that we created a free professional development guide for MSCs, which you can find in the show notes below. And without further ado, let's get started. Special thanks to MatMatch for sponsoring this episode. Our sponsor today is Johnson Matthey, a global leader in sustainable technology. Johnson Matthey's vision is for a world that's cleaner and healthier today and for future generations. Johnson Matthey's scientists use their deep understanding of materials, surface science, chemistry, and chemical engineering to design catalysts, advanced materials, and processes, tackling the world's biggest challenges, such as reaching net zero, enabling cleaner air, improving health, and using our planet's natural resources more efficiently. For over 20 years, they have been in the manufacturing and shape setting of nitinol tubes, sheets, and components for the medical device industry. So Johnson Matthey is an ideal sponsor for today's podcast. Johnson Matthey, inspiring science, enhancing life. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Zena Sinker, the chief creator of Puzzle X and the director general at AMPT, the Advanced Material Future Preparedness Task Force. Zena's experiences epitomize the idea of going against the grain and creating your own path, as her current work focuses on bringing advanced and frontier materials to light as a tool to solve humanity's most pressing challenges. She also has extensive experiences with graphene from her research at Vanderbilt to facilitating the commercialization of graphene as the executive director of the National Graphene Association. So we're super excited to dive into each of these experiences and hear your advice. So thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Well, like Puni said, it's clear that you've gone against the grain and that you've carved your own path through your life with material science included. What made you choose this path? And could you tell us more about finishing school and research at Vanderbilt and then starting off on your own life here? I don't think it was ever uh, a conscious choice for me to choose a different path. I just remember that towards the end of my PhD, whenever I thought about the conventional career path, it kind of gave me this very uncomfortable feeling that I, I felt claustrophobic. I thought about, okay, we might be going to, I don't know, the path is to go and work for a big corporate. And it just gave me this claustrophobic feeling of, I don't want to do that. And then academia, I just said, I don't want to do this. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I we all have talents and we all have things inside of us that makes us happy. I didn't exactly know what shape they were going to take. But one of the things that I did and I advise people to do around me is that the pieces that make you, you cannot choose them necessarily. You do not exactly know where they're going to get a piece that is going to be a, a, a very, very important piece of who you become or the initiatives that you create. So I did a lot of things that were really not in my field. Anytime that somebody needed help, I was there. I don't know, somebody wanted to organize a conference on campus and I said, you know what, that, that flyer doesn't look very good. Do you want me to help you do that? 
And I did it even without having any, obviously nobody was paying me and nobody was, uh, nobody was asking me to do it, but I did it. And every time I did something like that, there was a piece of that experience that got stuck to me. I learned new things about it. And all of those components had made me the person I am right now. So my advice to a lot of people around me is if something is offered to you to go and do something, say yes, volunteer, go do stuff. And you will not recognize later on in your life how you became you. Because there are, there are pieces, are thousands of pieces that have made me the result of those uh, very, very diverse and very unrelated experiences that I've had. So I didn't have a plan to become, to follow this path. I just, every time that there was a need for something, I volunteer to say, I'm going to do it. doesn't matter why. And all of those things, I guarantee you, they, they pay dividends. Well, obviously you didn't like all the things you did or probably not. So what does the internal reflection look like after you completed a task and said, well, I really like that, or I didn't like that. How do you make informed decisions going forward about what parts of you you want to build from each experience? Interesting. I hate writing. There is one <laughs> thing I hate with a passion. I hate writing. So people around me and my team, they know this thing. I tell them from the very beginning, know your weaknesses, share them with your, with your people and your team, tell them, help me get through that. So I absolutely love being creative. I like sketching. I write probably stacks of paper just, and I can't read my own handwriting. So I just dump ideas and I come up with these different concepts. That makes me happy. Writing makes me very unhappy. So every time that I have to write a proposal, I have to write, I don't know, an article or something. My, my team knows they have to feed me something that keeps me happy. So yesterday, when my, one of the members of my team, Bonnie, was telling me, Zina, okay, I'm going to give you this thing. Can you design this so you're happy and you can do this other writing, which we have been not doing for the past two weeks? And I said, yes, please give me something. Every time you learn something about yourself, embrace it, say it's a part of who I am. It's very difficult at our age to actually change stuff. That's the truth. The better attitude towards that is to say, I'm not good at this. I'm good at this. So how can I balance that when my job requires writing? It requires these other elements. Give yourself some of the other pieces that you really like and do that because every job will require things that you absolutely love and things that you absolutely hate. And you have to, you have to be able to handle all of them. There is never, ever going to be one job that is going to make you say everything about it is perfect. I mean, that what I'm doing these days, it makes my soul and my life, my being happy. But parts of that are excruciating to me uh, because I don't like doing them. And it's just life. Learn what you like, learn what you don't like and you're not good at and try to find ways around it because your job is probably going to require both of those components. I love that. And so I guess I was wondering then, how did you take that reflection and realizing maybe industry isn't the right fit for you? And how did you take that to end up in like your first role after finishing up at Vanderbilt? Good question. I I just knew I did a postdoc. I knew, goodness gracious, 
I don't want to do. I don't want to be in an academic path. It's fantastic. But what I wanted to do and what I was making my soul happy wasn't that. I really wanted to be an entrepreneur and there wasn't really a path for me to be an entrepreneur because I do come from the very fundamental physics background. I mean, in my, our whole building, I don't think that there was anybody who was actually an entrepreneur. Or when I started my first company, I was told, you know, you're a sellout for actually stepping outside of science. So that was that kind of mentality. The path of becoming an entrepreneur was not paved for me, but I just didn't want to follow an academic path. And as I mentioned, when I was thinking about, okay, I have to apply for these industry jobs, it just made me feel claustrophobic and I just don't want to do that. Then I thought, you know what? I don't know how to do this thing, but let me try it. And then I, I was cleaning my closet the other day and I found the first book that I bought, which says LLC for Dummies. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, it, was, it was a thick book. I didn't read all of it, but I was going through it and I was seeing the parts with I highlighted I looked at that and I said, oh, for dummies, <laughs> let me just read this and see. And I started my company without any mentorship, without anyone that would tell me this is a path or without seeing any examples of that. But that's a part of what I've realized I really, really enjoy. I really enjoy going into something. I have absolutely no idea how to do it. And reading dummy books and reading a lot of tutorials on the internet and going to Reddit and searching and finding my own path for it. So when I realized that I didn't want to be in academia, I said, let me try this. Did I know exactly where I wanted to take it? No, I wasn't one of those people who said, I'm going to be this by the next five years and this in 10 years. And that is okay. That I tell people to embrace that if you are that kind of personality, embrace it. That's who you are. That's who I am. Some of us are just that way. We do not have a, a concrete way into the future of seeing it. We're kind of like driftwoods. And everywhere we land, we, what you do is that you look at opportunities and say, what can I do to make this a better situation? What can I do to learn? And you do better. So for me, it was it wasn't an informed decision. It was just a series of little steps that you take. And it all started with me saying, I don't want to do this. I don't know what else I want to do. And I started taking a step by reading LSC for dummies. And I said, interesting. Okay, apparently it's not that difficult to, to incorporate your company. So let me incorporate the company. And then I said, you know what? Apparently there is a way that I could apply for an SBRS CTR grant. Let me try to do that. And I read about it and I did it. These little things... We might not plan them, but they take you somewhere. Yeah, this I feel like this relates to kind of David and I trying to figure everything out like from the get go. And so I love that you kind of had that situation where you didn't really know exactly what to do. And this was a completely new field or area for you, but you kind of just dove right in because that's where you push yourself out of your comfort zone and that's where you grow the most. And so I guess this might be just a, a question for David and I's sake, but what advice would you have for other MSCs that maybe want to get into entrepreneurship and learn more about the business side of things? My advice is probably not going to be useful for most people because I come from the very fundamental physics background, as I mentioned, and I didn't have examples in front of me. You guys probably have a lot of great examples. You probably have an entrepreneurship center that supports some of the things that you do. You've probably seen examples of people in your, in your your from your peers that have done that. So for me, it was a complete darkness. And what I was looking at was people telling me this is not the right path that is against the sanctity of science and then the glory of science. And 
it made it a lot more difficult for me to follow that path. But I think maybe if you have more of a structure, because there are other examples, you can talk to other people. You can maybe take part in some courses. You can go to conferences or workshops that are designed for you. I didn't do any of those things because I was in this isolated land of not knowing what to do. If I'd gone into engineering, probably department, that would have been, or if I did my degree there, it would have probably been a very different story. One thing that I have realized is that the life of an entrepreneur is so lonely and so difficult at times. You have the lowest moments of your life that normally you might not necessarily go through that if you follow a set path. If you go to academia and the milestones are so set for you, obviously you have to deliver and you have to function, but be ready for that. It can get really dark. I've had the darkest moments of my life when I was actually trying to do something different. And it makes you wonder because it's not a cookie cutter thing that you say, okay, I, it's just an abyss. You just don't know where you're going, where it's going to lead. And uh, you have to tell yourself that you're not, you're not the only one who's going through that. Every time you doubt yourself, you have to say, you know what? There are probably so many other people who have felt the same way. Elon Musk has talked about this. He has felt the same way. I mean, serious, everybody feels the same way. It doesn't help you in that moment, but at least logically put something in the back of your mind that this is normal for an entrepreneur to go through these really, really tough moments where you push. And I used to describe this, especially in the beginning of Amped, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, and it's not even moving an inch. Mm-hmm. Just you get so you say, I'm putting all this time, I'm not sleeping, and I've been working for a year and it's still not moving. What if I made a mistake? What if this is not the right path? What if this is it happens to every single person? They might not talk about it, but I can tell you this. It's ugly, it's brutal, and it's it's fascinating. It's so exciting that entrepreneurship is an exciting road. So if you're interested in that, take it on. If there are low moments, know that you are not the only one who's feeling like that. And embrace every moment that you figure out something, you incorporate your first uh, company, celebrate that one moment. Don't think that when you raise your first hundred million, it's going to be, there is never, ever going to be a better moment of joy that that first time that you look at, I, I incorporated something, <laughs> zero dollars in the bank. Never, nothing is going to replace that joy. So embrace it, love it, deal with the difficulties. It's everybody deals with that. I guess I wanted to get into now Puzzle X, which I saw was a, a great success, a huge accomplishment, and I'd love for our listeners to hear more about it. So we can give a brief background. It, Puzzle X is a global event and a venture builder dedicated to connecting the world of frontier materials, societal impact, entrepreneurship, and also the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So we'd love to hear more about the planning that went into that event, as well as what came out of this year's Puzzle X. Okay, so the way that I'm going to answer this, I just decided this. I'm going to connect it to the other questions that you asked. Okay, okay. Why did I do Puzzle X? I wasn't asked to do Puzzle X. There was no Puzzle X. There was no nothing. I mean, why did we even do this? And yes, it was a, it was a great, great, great success. In the beginning of the pandemic, I'm going to go back and probably answer one of your other questions about AMPT because Puzzle X is a project within AMPT. 
after three years when I was running the National Graphene Association, I kind of had this, I would say, I don't know, midlife crisis or whatever you want to call it, a crisis of saying that I wanted to do something different. And I grew it to the largest association in the world for graphene. It was like, okay, what's next? There isn't like a very big next. And then I said, I want to do something different, but I had absolutely no idea. I, I left, I resigned without having a single idea what I wanted to do. And I told myself, I'm going to give myself six months of not accepting any job offers or anything, but just being and seeing what I really want to do for the next one. And um, it coincided with COVID. And um, again, I it, there was no plan. I just was, um, I was just thinking, okay, what do I do? I wanted to start a consulting company just to kind of see because people were coming to me with some projects. I said, okay, well, I can, while I'm waiting, I can do some of these things. And I started getting during COVID in the beginning of February, March, I started getting a bunch of phone calls from people telling me, you know, we're trying to put for graphene a face mask and we don't know how to do it. Can you help us with NIOSH, with certification, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, so that's a very normal thing because I was running an association. So I have the majority of the contacts that I have in this, in this field. And I, I could have just done that, right? I could have said, okay, fantastic opportunity to make a lot of money. Okay, 10, 20 people, let me just help you. It probably becomes like a cookie cutter thing that I can just do and make a lot of money. But then I asked myself the question, I remember I was sitting right here, I was thinking, oh my God, how many people are trying to put graphene in a face mask? And then I asked another question, which was, which basically led me to, is this actually a good idea for us to put graphene in a face mask? is people are dying over there. Is this the most that we can do? Because apparently everybody in the graphene community is trying to put graphene a face mask. And I had this moment of saying, makes financial sense, but does it make a big impact societal wise? Mm -hmm. And my answer was no. And then I started thinking, okay, well, who tells us if we don't want to do this one, if I should tell people focus on something else, what are those areas that should, they should focus? The ventilator? But what are the problems? And then I realized we don't even know what the problems are. Then I started asking people, okay, so what are the problems of doctors and nurses? I've talked, said, we don't talk to nurses and doctors. We think this is a good idea. So we actually come up with these ideas. And I said, okay, normal circumstances, we know that's the way of the world, but people are dying. Is that the best that we can do? And that question led me to try to look up and see what organization in the world is supposed to align agendas when there is a big circumstance. I don't want to say like disaster or something, whatever you want to call it, pandemic, I don't know, global crises or um, I don't, climate change. Who aligns these agendas that are really not aligned? And who says, who goes out there and asks doctors and nurses, what do you really need that we can provide so that we could give that to our scientists and our entrepreneurs and say, look, and this is what we did. AMPT, when I started AMPT, we were the first ones who actually went to doctors and nurses and we asked them, do you want faith, better face masks? And they said, guys, we don't need better face masks. We need face masks. You're responding to a, lag, a blip in supply chain and you're thinking that you, we want better face masks. Uh, we don't want better face masks. But if you want to solve a problem, our goggles are fogging. We can't see through them. Can you do something about that? And we realized... Oh, shit. Yeah, you know what? Actually, we do have a lot of patients <laughs> which are for aerospace uh, that could apply here. And then we started going out there and kind of basically circulating that information among the graphing community saying these are the real problems when we go the field and we tell. And then we realized there is no organization in the world that does that. 
there is no organization that puts, instead of the commercial benefit, it puts the societal benefit and says, in a scenario like this, what are the biggest challenges? How can we align and shape agendas and make sure that we have more efficiency and optimization? And um, well, obviously, UN comes to mind, but UN is a behemoth organization that doesn't move. And there is really nothing slower than the United Nations that I have seen. <laughs> so that was not the path for us. And they had other things. So we said, what other organization? There is nothing like that. So I remember that I called in the biggest leaders in my field, the, the directors of the biggest graphene centers and billion dollar graphene, really uh, newer graphene flagship program, et cetera. And we said, from different parts of Singapore, US, UK, uh, Europe. And I called in the directors, the biggest kind of people that we have in the field, probably around maybe March or April. And, and I said, what are you guys doing as leaders in the field? And they said, we're not doing anything special. We're just doing our research the way that we are. And I said, we have to do more. It's our responsibility to do more. And we said, okay, how about we actually create something? And I said, if I create something around an organization, would you come around it? They said, yes. So I started something. I started AMPT without anybody funding me. And people were asking me who's funding this. I said, I don't need somebody to fund me to do what I think is the right thing to do. I've been fortunate enough. I've got, I can continue to a certain extent and I have me and I'm a, I've got a lot of energy and I've got a lot of, I, I, I can put a lot of time into this. And I said, I'm going to put a year of my life into this without expecting anything from it. And I did. And Puzzle X is an initiative under AMPT. And the, the whole concept is, can we use materials for what really delivers impact. And uh, Puzzle X was a representation of that, that we talked with the Spanish government and the General Tat of Catalonia and Barcelona City Hall. And um, we wanted to create the first collision grounds of frontier materials and sustainable development goals. How can these things be used as a tool to make a better future for humanity aligned with the 2030 agenda? And that's the background. It was a long one. And I think that all <laughs> your other questions in there. That's awesome. I guess with, with that collision ground idea, one thing that I was just wondering is what are things that MSCs don't really think about when it comes to creating societal impact and, and maybe the, the other facets that come into play outside of engineering innovations like policy and, and things like that? Creating impact is you have to have courage to look at what you're doing and say, this is my baby. This is my research. And I'm, I've spent all my time into this thing. And I'm saying that I'm going to make a better, I don't know, um, test for XYZ or a better biosensor, et cetera, with this material, which is my baby material. My, my, it's, uh, I don't know, it's graphene, it's whatever it is. Look at it with courage and say, maybe this is not the best, the best application for this, or maybe there are other ones that are doing the same thing. A lot of times people get so, so wrapped up in what they love. And I've done the same thing where you do not see that there are many other things that are doing the same exact thing, but they're not as sexy. They're not as hypey. There's not, but you have to have the courage to look at it and say, for the sake of humanity and for the sake of maximizing impact, maybe Copper does a better job and copper is not as sexy. It's been around for, for a long time. Maybe I should actually go and help the copper people. Knowing that you're not going to publish, you're probably not going. The problem is that that's not how people look at this. If you want to look at impact, 
get outside of your own field and look at it objectively of what is really the impact. And another part, part of that is that some of us in more on the fundamental layer as opposed to application-wise, experimental side, we are not taught to actually think about what impact something has. So we cannot really fault ourselves. I cannot fault myself of like 10 years ago saying, why did you not know about sustainable development? Because first of all, that was not around. But in any of the global prosperity or sustainability, we are never exposed to something like that. I mean, we're not taught to think like that. So go out there and, and try to get outside of the bubble and look into the bubble of civil societies, the people who are really dealing with problems. And it doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean you're right. It means that you have to adopt some of that language and learning. And if we create that path maybe for academia a little bit, it would make it easier for young scientists to say, okay, apparently I have to think about what is the impact of my, I never thought about that. I never, I, not a single time I went to the lab and I thought, how does this actually affect humanity? We did, you know, when when we actually had to write a proposal for like Air Force or for something, <laughs> put these bogus things. Why are we doing this thing? Now it's going to be making the better transistors. If I had done just a little bit of research outside, I would have known that silicon is already doing that. And this stuff that I'm, t- I'm talking about and I'm putting in my, my our proposals, sounds fantastic, but it comes from a p- place of not knowing what the other piece of industry are doing. So majority of people that actually talk to in academia, a lot of them, especially the young, young scientists, they don't look outside to see what is the state of commercialization that some of those things that they actually put in these uh, proposals already exist. And if we start thinking from the very beginning, trying to solve a problem that really exists instead of inventing a problem so that our solution fits into it, we would be able to align it much better with impact as opposed to us creating it after three years and saying, okay, now I have to fit it into something. I have to shove it into something and advertise it as this is the best thing in the world. And at that point, you've spent so much time and energy into it. You don't want to abandon that. That takes a lot of courage to actually say, you know what? Yeah, maybe there is a better solution out there that's cheaper and it's more accessible. So I would say that get outside of the bubble of academia, look outside in civil societies, look outside of people who actually are doing something within this framework of sustainable development. And UNSDGs is a very good framework of looking at it saying, okay, how does it really, how does it really help? And be courageous to look objectively at what you're doing. If you want to, there is absolute value in fundamental science that you do stuff for the sake of exploration. There is no reason why you do something. You say, interesting, have absolutely no idea what to do, but we're going to do this thing. We had, uh, during Puzzle X, we had, um, we had one of our speakers was, was one of our scientists in Pablo Herrero from, um, from MIT, who you might have seen if you're in science and in, in material science with the twisted bilary graphene and the twistronics. Um, and they are, he was talking about how, he has no idea what this is going to be used in. And he is okay with saying that. People ask him, well, what is this going to be used in? He says, no idea, I don't know. And a lot of those science, a lot of things that have gone into our phones and everything, these are the things that were done by, for the reasons that are not practical. It was just, let's just see what happens to electrons when we do this thing. And then decades later, you have an application for it. Another really key important thing that you brought up a lot during your explanation was 
you have been working with governments such as like the UN and government of Spain. And that's like a completely different thing that we've never touched on on the podcast, which is the interaction between engineers or uh, innovators and policymakers. So can you explain to us what is the importance of this relationship and how have you utilized it with PuzzleX or AMPT to further expand your resources or even your communication to the broader audience of the general public? Policymakers are human beings. Scientists are human beings, right? The problem is that we don't speak the same language. That's the same thing that if somebody wrote your papers or something that we've, we produce in science and they look and say, oh, that looks gibberish. The same thing is applied when we look at the way the policy word, the work that the Senate, I don't know, appropriation, any of these things, even these words don't mean anything to us. When I was running the National Graphing Association, that was the first time that I actually had to interface with that because we had to do policy work, advocacy work on Capitol Hill. So I remember sitting down and, and thinking, oh, those things like about Senate and House. Uh, now let me look at that like if I would understand that better because now I actually need it. And it was a re-education. And we're not taught that. I mean, even maybe you take a course, but that's a useless course. I did take that course. I don't remember a single <laughs> time I learned in that thing. You only learn things where you actually have to use them and you go back and say, oh, now that makes sense. So we are not given the language to speak to policymakers, which is okay. It doesn't mean that you have to speak everybody's language. But if there are people who are interested in, in that element of policy, I have one advice for them, a few. One is when I was doing my PhD, I really thought to myself, I am never, ever going to be one of those people who go on Capitol Hill and rub shoulders. Who are these people? They sell out. So, I mean, what are they doing? <laughs> Uh, that, that doesn't even make sense to me. I, seriously, that attitude needs to stop. So then I was like, a few years later, I was the one who was doing those. <laughs> I said the same thing about standardization as well. And I was like, oh, are these people who sit around? They don't have a life. They sit around and they talk about what to call what? Don't you have a life? <laughs> I am actually a US expert on the majority of the graphene documents right now. For <laughs> a lot of these things we don't know. So it's an unknown world. And you say, not for me. I don't understand it. So I would say, if you're thinking like that, take a minute to say there was somebody else who thought like that and they are now doing that. And um, it is useful. If it wasn't useful, I wouldn't be doing that. Why is it useful? Even though we don't have the same common language, it's because the patient capital that is needed for a lot of the fundamental science work and a lot of the experimental or a lot of the application work comes from the government. If government decides to fund, I don't know, what, what material are you guys working on? Uh, I'm working on battery systems so like NMC and uh, other battery systems. What about you? I'm working on piezoelectric materials within uh, ultrasound catheters for medical devices. Okay, so let's think about that. If there was no funding for piezoelectric materials, your research would not been done. You wouldn't be sitting here talking about this right now, right? Who puts that money in, in there? And in that in those appropriation that goes into cost for proposals, and then you're, you're probably your, your advisor or your PI applies for it, and then you get funding, and then you can hire graduate students, and then you can do this. It's the government. So the policy and advocacy work that you do from the science side is a lot of that is going to be on what are the areas where we really need to put emphasis on, which is going to have bear fruit in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years. And that element, instead of us relying on lobbyists on Capitol Hill that know nothing about our materials, 
we need to be the ones who actually go there because we understand what's the value of it. And again, in throughout all of this, for the sake of impact, be objective and do not just blind, don't put a blindfold on and say, ours is the best. Be understanding that this is the this is government money, this is taxpayers' dollars that goes into this. So if you really believe that there's going to be some impact done in your field, then go and advocate for it. That's the reason why I put a lot of emphasis in it, because there needed to be funding directed to graphing activities in the U.S. And we were successful in doing that, appropriating money for certain applications, for, for infrastructure, for other applications, for, for electronics, et cetera, so that people would be able to do more research, people would be able to actually do more uh, entrepreneurial, bridging the gap uh, um, uh, activities. But to do that, we need scientists to know the language of policymakers. And sometimes there are AAAS does have these fellowships, these policy fellowships. I never did that. I wish I had. Do you know how much I would have learned if I had that? That would have been much better <laughs> if I actually had any learnings. I had to, again, I had to learn on my own these things, and it takes much longer. But if you're interested in that, there are these fellowships that you can actually, if you really want to do it, there are these fellowships that you can do. On the other side of it, if you do not want to leave your postdoc and you just say, I want to... I want to learn more about it. There are a lot of resources out there. Just search, just start learning. Like, oh, we like, as scientists, we like learning. Like, just go around and find out what is being done, find out the lingo, the terminology, the nomenclature, all of those things that is done. And at a certain point, you start feeling more comfortable with it. And then at that point, there is always going to be some element of that in every university. Find out who is doing what in your university. Go to them and say, I'm interested in something like this. Is there anything I can do? Or look for some of the associations, MRS, for example, APS, all of those associations, scientific associations, have a policy arm, which usually is not known to students, right? I mean, why would you? They're not focused on us. Uh, They're not focused... They're focused on more kind of uh, applications for the members or for senior members. Go there and say, what can I do? I want to do something. And as I said in the beginning, put yourself in everything, offer to do stuff, and it will be really good for you. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for all the information. I had no idea that MRS even had a policy wing. That's, I thought it was only for grants for uh, research. So that's very insightful about how it kind of affects all the parts of our research lives. But it's almost like a cognitive distance where we choose not to look at it for the most part. But moving on to the science behind your organization and what you've been doing for the past years, graphene is such a unique material. So you've been talking about in face masks and unfogging glasses, but what applications can this material be used in and what are your focuses that you focused on throughout your career? My relationship with graphene has been very different throughout the years. I, most of my research, my work was on on optoelectronics applications of graphene um, and uh, lasers, ultra-fast lasers, et cetera. But when I was running the association, a lot of our focus in the U.S. was on infrastructure and composites, on aviation, on basically lower grades of graphene um, that are graphene nanoplaylists are not necessarily the film form that we have. I mean, everybody knows about graphene. Graphene's interesting properties would be the electronics, optoelectronics, and also the mechanical strength. And I would say also the flexibility aspect of it. One of the most interesting things for graphene for me is the biocompatibility aspect, which is this is a carbon-based material that is conductive and that is transparent. I mean, those things are really interesting. It might not necessarily result in a lot of applications at the moment. It's a little bit more of a like a, a unique value proposition of graphene that could 
impact us in the next seven, 10 years. But those are the ones that are super exciting to me. So that means that most of my interest in this area, besides the things that can really make gradual changes and enhancement in infrastructure, in cement, in concrete, in paints, et cetera, for, I don't know, uh, electroconductive paints, or I don't know, concrete that requires 30% less cement um, in it and 30% less impact on the global, uh, on the climate change, for example. Those are fantastic things, but they're not like, oh my God, so sexy, so, so unique. Nothing else could have done that. I think that those applications are really, I, I'm excited about are in bio applications or something related to bioelectronics, some stuff inside human body with these materials. Okay, I have a question about that since I also love the bio-related applications. As David knows, I always ask about it. But so from graphene standpoint, I know a related material is carbon nanotubes. And one challenge with that is cytotoxicity since it's such a small material potentially entering cells. Is there a similar issue with, with graphene and what, what steps are being taken to address that challenge? Great question. Also, before I did the, I, I, I was running the National Graphene Association, I had absolutely no idea what like EHS was, Environmental Health and Safety, or what EPA was doing, what FDA was doing. I was like, okay, these people, why, what, what's the big deal? Um, and then, yes, I ended up working with them and spending a lot of time on EHS. I don't want to say there is an issue because it's a lack of understanding. We don't exactly know. And there's also this fear aspect. One of the things that I was, I think, who was it? Lisa Frenhofer uh, from the, um, the director of the White House Office for Nanotechnology. One time I talked to her and she said, look, we need to look into these things, but look under your kitchen cabinet and look at how many toxic materials you have there. Those are toxic materials. You just learn, you understand it, and say, okay, this is not for drinking. You do not put bleach in your body. Uh, you do not touch it. You put gloves on. The same exactly needs to be understood with these materials and understanding what are the risks. And for example, for something that is inside encapsulated with graphene nanoplates or carbon nanotubes, the truth is that for applications like in tires or in, in body of a car, that matrix encapsulation will never come out in during the life cycle that you interact with it. There needs to be in health and safety uh, considerations for people who work with the powder, which there are people who work with acids and a lot, a lot more toxic things than that, right? But normal people, us oh, getting inside a car, that has nothing to do with us. So talking about toxicity in that sense, you have to it's not an issue. We just have to understand it. I have to understand we have also so many other examples of materials that has, have gone through the same path. For inside a human body, different subject, right? But also I want to bring attention to the fact that uh, those studies about carbon nanotubes that were about one class of carbon nanotubes that basically killed an industry or, or kind of brought the industry down to a certain point, we didn't want to repeat the same mistake with graphene. So a lot of the the work on environmental health and safety for graphene was done beforehand in anticipation of that. Just because one class of carbon nanotubes in this one study resulted in this, we shouldn't be going out there and saying carbon nanotubes are toxic and they're bad because it has an impact on the public mind. It also has an impact on the policymakers' mind to fund some of these research. I remember I went and I was talking with a congressman um, and he was talking, he, the first thing he asked me was, if somebody has a bucket of graphene powder and they go on the Empire State Building and they dump it, are people going to die? And 
you you understand where that mentality is coming from. They have to be mindful of that. And all of those things are coming from the press and the public that they have heard. So not a straight answer. So one thing I was looking at was the program for Puzzle X. And one thing that caught my attention was biosensors. It's something you previously mentioned. Can you talk more about that application for graphene, what that means from a biosensing standpoint? We have a lot of folks that are working on that element for graphene and other frontier materials. So let me also say that we kind of have been using the word frontier materials because those are the materials on the bleeding edge of development and uh, frontier materials of, let's say, 2000 years ago were bronze and frontier materials of like uh, 150 years ago were steel. And as materials on that bleeding edge, they get developed, they move more towards the, the circle, the center, which is like they become advanced materials and they become legacy materials. Right now, steel is no longer in frontier material. It's no longer been an advanced material necessarily in most cases. It's a legacy material. So is bronze. Um, so is silicon at this point. Silicon in the 60s and 70s, the frontier material was uh, was silicon. So I don't want to just talk about graphene. It's the whole class of things that require a lot more patience to, to deal with, but they have really era-changing potential. And in biosensors, I do believe that there is going to be a really big wave with frontier materials, with 2D materials, materials with graphene coming in because of sensitivity and biocompatibility aspect of these materials. And we're seeing that with biosensor tattoos, with um, UT Austin and a lot of the brain interfaces that we're seeing application-wise, it's coming from graphic flagship and also with an ICN2 um, in, in Barcelona. So there is a lot of cool applications that are on the horizon. And with these applications, uh, are these ideas coming from puzzlets? Or if not, what are some of the uh, ideas that came out of this most recent puzzlets with these advanced materials in mind. It will be very strange for people to come up with ideas during an event, right? The events are a convening forum. You come to collide with people. And what we did with Puzzle X was that it was the first event in Frontier Materials that wasn't about science. It were hardcore science, but we translated that into human language. And we had TED-like style talks that were more of a performance than anything. And I remember that... I was seeing a line outside of auditorium of the public coming in. And I was thinking, this is, we must be doing something right because it's not a rock concert. People are in a line to get into listening to scientists. Isn't that cool? I mean, we usually go to our, our conferences and we talk to each other, right? Now here is, and the reason, the way that we did that, we had to do a lot of work on communication language for something like that. We used a lot of illustration and graphic illustration, things like that. We talked spent a tremendous amount of time with our speakers, making sure that the that is going to be comprehended by other by the public. And it resulted in something fantastic, which was public people outside of your field are absorbing the information that comes from your field. And that was the intent. The intent wasn't for people to come with come up with ideas during Puzzle Acts. It was to find each other. When you are an investor who, who is investing in digital space, you know nothing about material space. Can we bring you in here so that you actually get comfortable with this language and you rub shoulders and you say, oh, interesting. Yes, I, or, although I don't have that in my portfolio, I would like to explore more. Or bringing, I don't know, Hyperloop, we're bringing HP, bringing BSF and saying, can we create a language where you actually talk to not engineer application-wise to a bleeding edge of material science? And they were able to do that. 
And so that was the intent for Puzzle X. It wasn't to come up with ideas because the people who were there were full of ideas. We don't need more new ideas. That's awesome. It, it seems there are similarities between our goals with the podcast as well, where we just try to share the impact in a lot of different arenas and share that with current MSEs as well as prospective MSEs as well to hopefully encourage more creativity and more passion for um, or more excitement for the field. And so with that being said, I know we covered quite the range of topics today from, you know, graphene to, I guess, being a misfit, not pursuing traditional paths, and also, I guess, working with policymakers to push the boundaries of science. So with all that being said, what other advice would you give to material scientists and engineers who maybe haven't found their ideal fit yet and want to create a path of their own? Biggest advice for somebody who hasn't found their path is that there are some of us, I'm repeating myself, there are some of us who are not meant for the cookie cutter. And there are some of us who are going to go through their entire life making tremendous amount of impact, still not knowing where they're going to be in the next two years. They don't even know where they're going to be in the next one year. And that is okay. If you're somebody like that, I, nobody ever told me that was okay. I always felt so guilty about not knowing and looking at people around me and say, they said, we're going to do this in the next five years. And, it's, and I said, I don't even have that. What I, I felt like I didn't, there was something wrong with me. And then I have realized um, when have candid conversation with some of the most powerful people in, in, in science and some of them in, in, in commerce that they say that they don't have goals. Do you know that it is it is okay for you not to have goals? But what is not okay is this. If you sit around and you do not put every minute of your the, the energy that you have into something, just because you don't have a goal, that doesn't mean that you can sit around and do nothing about it. it go volunteer, look around, look around everything. And everything that you say, instead of saying, I'm not paid enough to do this, or that's not complete related, put every ounce of you into it. And it will become, you'll absorb that and it will become a part of this mosaic thing that makes you. And that's you, it will give you the path. It will be a compass, a part of a compass that gives you your path. So that was my last for the misfits so do not have a goal in their lives. I love that. That's kind of why David and I encourage getting involved with side projects or with leadership positions at organizations that maybe don't have to do with MSE either, just because you learn a lot by getting involved with things that aren't just purely focused on your major, which you're already studying in course curriculum. So doing that with AMPT as well. So one of the things I said, even though it's a lot of time and energy from ourselves, we've created a platform where we give people from any field, say, come on in, get a taste. We'll put you to something that is aligned with what you want to, to do. And we spend a time training, going, taking, because I've seen that done for me and I am doing that for others now. So if there's anybody who's interested, drop me a line. Um, we'll find something interesting for you that adds to your, to your portfolio of experiences. What's the best way to reach you then? LinkedIn. We'll drop a link for to your LinkedIn profile in the description then. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much, Zena, for joining us today. We definitely gained a lot of insight and advice into a whole new world that we haven't really covered in previous episodes. So we really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was fun. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. 
David and I also created a career development guide for MSCs, which you can download for free using the link in the show notes below. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow this show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. Links will be provided in the show notes as well. We'll see you soon. And in the meantime, go change the world.